Welcome to the Battlefest podcast, the place to be to catch up on all debates and discussions from the Battle of Ideas Festival 2021. The following debate is called The Irish Border Question, Can the Union Survive? In the chair is Kevin Rooney. The Irish Border Question, Can the Union Survive? Question mark. And I'm, I'm Kevin Rooney and I'm a member of the Academy of Ideas since it was founded and convener of the Education Forum. But for this particular debate, I'm wearing another hat, uh, uh, which is that I'm editor of a, a new website called irishborderpoll.com. And I produced this debate. And by the way, if you're multitask and you're good on technology, feel free to get up on your phone, irishborderpoll.com, if you like the look of it, um, sign up and subscribe and all the rest of it. Now, this debate, obviously, I've given you the title. It can go anywhere. You know, we can talk about the protocol. Should it be a border in the Irish Sea? Should it be a border in Ireland? Really, at the end of the day, I want to hear people on the panel and people in the audience try to persuade each other about what are the arguments for another Ireland remaining in the Union and what are the arguments for a united Ireland. Really, that's what the debate's about. So, um, first of all, we've got a sad news. Peter Cardwell, one of the speakers, has pulled out. Peter is a unionist uh, uh, and uh, talk radio political correspondent. And uh, it's actually a very good friend now of myself, I would say, on the VarishBorderPoll.com. He's been very good, spoke in our first ever debate. A really good friend of his died, passed away on Friday, and he's not in that fit state to come and do the debate. And I don't think it's a secret. His friend was James Brokenshire, the Secretary of State for Northern Ireland. And um, not only was Peter an advisor to, to James, but he was actually a really, really good friend. And he followed him when, when James went to his next portfolio. So, so we wish um, James... Brokenshire's family, um, the very best at this sad time. Um, we've got a brilliant replacement here in Gwen. Um, Gwen, uh, uh, Gwen is, um, wears many, many hats, but if I cut a long story short, he's the former director of communications for the Brexit party. When you speak to anybody about the referendum and all the rest of it, a lot of the people in the know will say he was one of the main men. And he's absolutely pro-union, good support of the union, so he's going to make that argument. Um, uh, and so that's brilliant. So the way the order of speakers is going to go, we've got Mick on the left, Mick Felty. You might not know, but Slugger 2 uh, is, is probably the best political website in the north of Ireland. Everybody goes to it. It's got its finger on the pulse, and Mick's the main man behind that. So he's going to give us his uh, spiel. I think, you know, I described him in the blurb as an in-betweener. The debate on United Ireland, some people are United Irelanders, some people are pro-union people, and there's those people who, who we call the in-betweeners or the neithers. They're yet to be persuaded. So that's where he's coming from. So Mick will speak first, Gwyn will go second, and then we have on my immediate left, Andre, Andre Murphy. And Andre uh, writes for the Belfast Media Group, what in the old days we used to call the Andy Town News, and <laughs> writes for the Belfast Telegraph, and is a member of Ireland's Future. And Ireland's Future is a civic organisation in Ireland campaigning for a united Ireland. And if truth be told, the, the little campaign that I'm behind with other people, IrishBorder.com, uh, we sort of model ourselves on like the, the mothership, which is Ireland's future. And, and last but not least, we've got Peter Ramsey over here, Professor of Law at London School of Economics, and a founder member uh, of the, the Full Brexit. And the reason why Peter's on the panel is because you wrote an article which was... Why British Brexiteers should uh, Why British Brexiteers should back Ireland's unification? Without further ado, as I catch a breath, Mick, you're very welcome. When you're ready. Thanks, Kevin. Uh, so I'm going to start. Uh, can the union survive? That's the big question here. Well, my, my I'm always tempted to say yes or no to that. Um, <laughs> But well, I'm going to put it in a slightly longer hand way. To survive, it's easier for unionists because they only have to make Northern Ireland hospitable for all of its people, not just those people who say they're unionist. Nationalism, on the other hand, cannot win a border poll on the votes of Catholics and a few disgruntled dissenters alone. The truth is that changing a constitutional status that's been in place for 100 years is really where the bigger challenge of the two lies. Now, when you look at the data on how things are going at the moment, particularly I'm thinking about the Northern Ireland uh, election survey that took place after the 2019 general election, unionism and nationalism as political creeds are shrinking. Non-unionists and non-nationalists in that particular survey now outnumber all of those who are committed one way or the other to 
a, a particular constitutional uh, position. And this, again, is a bigger problem for those who are advo advocating change. Unlike Scotland and Northern Ireland, the change proposition is still hugely polarizing. And more significantly, it's still the minority position. So given that, single identity appeals won't work in terms of winning a future border poll. Any campaign that's based on demographics only is a thinly veiled bid for tribal dominance and accordingly will fail. Yes, the number of Protestants is dropping, but between 2001 and 2011, the growth of Catholics was less than 1%, something that somehow went missing in the uh, media reporting of that particular census. So rather than heading towards an uneasy 50-50 standoff, the number of neithers is growing. And looking at recent election results, we're talking about 20% of the population that's neither committed to one position or the other. Taboos in education are dying, so that many Catholics are now demanding entrance to state grammar schools and, if I may say, the right to play British, or as we used to call it, foreign sports. <laughs> so that's going to have a long-term cultural uh, difference. So my final sort of point is that the British Union, or the United Kingdom as we know it, is not like the European Union in the sense that it's built on blood and treasure, most of which is experienced in, within the living memory of most adults in Northern Ireland, and it's not a government-to-government -government treaty. The loudest advocates of unification also champion a very uh, complicated and compromising long war in which, on the Republican side, there were something like 2,152 killings, many more maimings, and many more people traumatised by, uh, by that campaign. On the other hand, there are over 200 all-island organisations who have not only survived the partition of the last 100 years, but have thrived. And these organisations, I believe, can provide a template for moderate Republicans to do what the new constitution of 1998 implores citizens of the Irish Republic to do, which is to unite all the people who share the territory of the island of Ireland. So in summary, I would say constitutional change is not a panacea. Demanding it in the short term when it's not viable crowds out positive actions that would, over time, unite all the people, not just some of the people. There's a journey to be going on without preconditions, as Jerry Adams used to say. Um, Doug Beattie's Union of the People narrative, which he's floated this, this weekend at the Ulster Unionist Party conference, I think is a brave attempt to shift the unionist narrative away from fundamentalist uh, ideologies towards something much more accepting and pragmatic. And the Shared Island Initiative of the new Fianna Fáil-led government in Dublin is an invitation for all participants in Northern Ireland to play, to start uh, playing with the future. So here's a quotation from maybe some of you have heard it before, some of you haven't but it's from a rather famous historic character. If ever you're going to bring about United Ireland, to bring the Ulster portion of the community into line with the rest of Ireland, you will never do it by any means except those of persuasion. You must show and explain to them what is your case for turning them out of the United Kingdom, and in addition, what is the advantage they're going to gain when they are turned out. I think the nationalists of Ireland will have to try different methods from that which they have tried over the last 20 years. And that's Sir Edward Carson speaking in the House of Commons debate on the Government of Ireland bill on the 9th of June, 1913. And it seems to me 108 years have passed before initiatives like the Shared Island Initiative, like the change in the Ulster Unionist narrative, have come to embrace Carson's insight. Either he wasn't listened to or he was never heard. Now, there are good people in all political parties in Northern Ireland, but we do have to be vigilant about the stories that we tell ourselves about ourselves. The Nigerian writer Ben Okri once said, sick storytellers make nations sick. We have to choose between the stories that shrink life and those that expand it, whether that is within the present United Kingdom or in a future politically united Ireland. Thanks, Mick. Uh, Gwen, yourself, argument for the union. Good morning and all that. Um, 
I admit, well, listen to my accent, I'm obviously less uh, viscerally associated with Northern Ireland than the rest on this panel, and no doubt many in the audience. However, um, I would regard myself as a Briton first and an Englishman second. Um, I come from an army family, and as I was growing up, every morning the mirror was put underneath the car. Many friends of my father and people I would see around the breakfast table over my youth didn't come back. So I do feel quite strongly from that historical perspective. But I was also taught when I first got involved in politics about 25 years ago as an English politician, as an Englishman, two things you do never, ever, ever get involved in. Do not talk about Kashmir and don't talk about Ulster. So when Claire phoned me up two days ago and said, come do this event, I said, yeah, of course, no problem at all. Um, so I'm aware that there are sensitivities of which I am unaware. It is the, uh, the unknown unknowns that I face. However, that all being said, um, I do believe very strongly that um, the union of this nation, the United Kingdom, is of great value, both to ourselves and to those people who live in the six counties. I do believe that it is more than somebody's religion. It is more than somebody's place of birth. At times when one looks at the debate across the board, one feels that, particularly on the Unionist side, it's almost like Judaism. One has to be born to it. People don't become Unionists. It is something very deep within and something that can almost... It, is, it takes a massive force of will to reject this as a political conception, because it is more than just politics. As somebody said about something else, it is the art, it is the culture, it is the music, it is the songs. It is everything that comes with that and as part of life. So the idea that people can be bamboozled by Westminster trickery and EU legislation and EU treaties into ceasing to be that which they are in the very core of their being is a fantasy, and a sick and unpleasant fantasy at that. Um, I would think that of the peoples of this country and of these islands, the unionist community in Northern Ireland have to be the most seriously betrayed people of all. The amount of times promises have been made, the amount of times blandishments have been done. Let's just bribe them with lots of welfare state spending. Let's just do this. It doesn't affect the very core being of who the Unionist community are. Um, that being said, I'm thinking of what uh, Mick was just saying there. The future, as I said, I want, in answer to the question, I will uh, dare say yes. Yes, of course. Yes, of course it can survive. Yes, of course uh, Northern Ireland can stay within the United Kingdom. Um, it is baffling to me, and I think to pretty much everybody who supported Brexit in 2016 and before, and since that something like the Northern Ireland Protocol could have been brought in at all. What was on Carson's great point, and it, it comes from the Act of Union and beyond, it's about equality of people who have as their political head the monarch. Equality. That which the people of Northern Ireland have received in post the referendum has been anything but equality. They have been relegated yet again as second-class citizens, and yet that loyalty remains, and that culture and that community remains. So um, I, I can understand greatly how, how pained and how hurt the people, the unionist community, particularly in Northern Ireland, are. I can't pretend to speak for uh, the nationalist community. I know very little, if I'm honest, about the drivers there. But I can see that hurt. But what has been amazing to me is how, rather than throwing a toy out of the pram, rather than resorting to, to ugly methods, broadly the unionist community has actually come together on issues pertaining to this. People who would hardly talk to each other in the street do work together on this issue. And the, uh, I think in very 
very, very soon we're going to see the case going to the Supreme Court that will question these matters. So whilst speaking from a point of absolute clear ignorance, I do believe that the, the moral case for retaining the union and the union surviving is still very well made just by the behaviour of people in the post-16 uh, period. So thank you very much. Thank you, William. Thank you very much. And it wasn't sheer ignorance at all, so Andre, the case for United Ireland. Go. Sitting in Westminster, a dove sitting and talking about a United Ireland is quite a privilege and quite quite something and something I never thought I'd be doing. But um, and I want to thank Kevin and and the organisers of the conference for giving us space for this, and thank you for mentioning James Brokenshire as well because you know that's important that we remember him today. Um, we also sit in the centenary of partition. Uh, or the foundation of the northern state. And a hundred years later, what is the condition of that state? And there's been some discussion around that, but largely it hasn't been what people expected. It's been something that's been overshadowed by the impact of Brexit, the impact of the, of the complete instability of the, um, of the union as a result of the Brexit vote. And just about every week, something else happens that makes people go, well, you know what? We don't want to be tied to that, to what's happening over there in England. We maybe chart a new course for ourselves. And every week, more, more and more, this debate grows on the island of Ireland. Um, so much so that people we never thought would be talking about discussing the feasibility of a united Ireland are doing it. People in Fine Gael and Fianna Fáil are talking about the need to plan for a united Ireland to be able to posit what is it that we are talking about? What is it a new Ireland might look like? Because the reality is that after partition was enforced over the head uh, to create a Protestant state for a Protestant people on the basis of a sectarian headcount, on the basis of enforcement by, at the end of a gun, we've had, we saw the creation of two reactionary states. We saw the one in the south, which um, was absolutely, um, it, the state was collaborated with by the Catholic Church, and there was a war enforced on women and children across, on the island of Ireland. And we also saw in the north, we saw um, a reactionary state, and Catholics were the victim of it, and um, enforced discrimination, systemic discrimination for most, for most of the, um, the past 100 years. But 100 years later, despite that, we see that the Anglo-Irish Treaty, which was signed in around these areas, these streets, is about to be torn up. It's as close to it as since Cromwell ever came to our shores. And it really is in touching distance for so many of us. And why? Because English people voted for Brexit and people in Ireland didn't. There's a democratic deficit in terms of Brexit where the people in Ireland said no to Brexit. They wanted to stay in the European Union. And since then, that complete um, contradiction has, a, has created a constitutional debate that is quite unprecedented. I would say what has compounded it is the, hard, the incredible type of Brexit that's been pursued, this hard Brexit that completely ignores the peace agreement so hard won and so hard fought for by everyone. It's been pushed to the side and that made the protocol completely inevitable. And so the reality is today, the protocol is working. The protocol works to create economic stability for our island. And we saw last week in Manchester, the policy exchange debate, where this was recognized by Brexiteers. The problem with the protocol is that it is creating an all-island economy. Supply chains are coming from Europe into the island of Ireland. The problem for unionism is they're not recognizing their position at the moment is secure, but it only gets weaker every time they try to create a harder protocol or they try to uh, enforce a hard Brexit on, on the island of Ireland. The Queen is still the monarch for unionists living in Ireland. And the reality is that since the Good Friday Agreement, we haven't seen the realization of rights for those most affected. We haven't seen cultural rights. Being Irish in the north of Ireland is still completely difficult. We don't have recognition of our language. 
cultural rights remain stubbornly difficult to enforce. We don't have a Bill of Rights based on the ECHR, despite it being in the Good Friday Agreement, the St Andrews Agreement, the Stormont House Agreement. We still don't have that because unionism prevents that and Westminster does nothing about it. And we see a real under-enforcement of the peace agreements as a result of that. And most importantly, we see the failure to deal with the past. We see that we don't, that Westminster now, what they are doing with their le legislation on dealing with the past, where they say all the violations of the past can be amnestied and pushed away in our interest, the interests of the people in Whitehall and these streets around here. And that says to every single victim, whether you're affected by Republicans, loyalists, or the British state, it says whether you're living on the island of Ireland or the island of Britain, you're not worthy. And the more that Britain tells us we're not worthy, the more that we'll seek independence. Brilliant, thank you very much. Andre, thank you very much. And Peter Ramsey, last but certainly not least. Um, well, like Gawain, I'm going to look at this question from a British perspective, but um, a rather different one. The reason we're all in this room talking about the union with Northern Ireland is not because the old Irish question has re-emerged in British politics. The old Irish question was the question of how the claims of the Irish nation would be dealt with by the state institutions of the United Kingdom. But we're in this room because there is a current debate which has been triggered by a new and a different question, which I think we can call the British question. Brexit raised the claim or the problem of how the state institutions of the United Kingdom were to deal with the claims of the British nation. As a member state of the European Union, uh, the, uh, the British state of that period was uh, failing to represent its people adequately. And in 2016, a majority of voters rejected member statehood. And as a byproduct of rejecting that Britain, we might call it third way Britain, uh, the Irish border re-emerged as a problem. And that's why we're here. So Brexit raised the question of the British, uh, raised the British question, but I, it didn't answer it. Uh, and it needs answering because I think if we're honest, as a British citizen, if we're honest, the traditions and institutions that um, once converted the diverse uh, peoples of these islands into a singular British nation are in serious decay. The crown, the state religion, the mother of parliaments, the constitution, the welfare state, all the institutions uh, out of which Britain is created have worn very thin. And it raises the question, what is Britain? What, if anything, unites the British into a single nation. Now, at the moment, there are various contenders around. But when I ask myself the British question, I can't find a place for Northern Ireland in the answer. And I'll give you three reasons why. First, the Northern Ireland Protocol proves what has always been true, that Northern Ireland is part of a United Kingdom with England, Wales, and Scotland in name only. A lot of British citizens have their home there, but Northern Ireland is just not British. The protocol puts a trade border uh, between uh, the different provinces of uh, this so-called United Kingdom, and it puts economic regulation of one of the provinces in the hands of foreign powers. That Her Majesty's government ever agreed to it tells you uh, that Northern Ireland is not really part of the United Kingdom. And so do the reasons why Her Majesty's government agreed to it. They agreed to it because the British government couldn't persuade the Irish government to change arrangements on the land border. But the British government didn't want to change those arrangements unilaterally without Dublin's consent because that would risk the Good Friday Agreement. And the Good Friday Agreement can't be risked because since the 1970s, the early 1970s, all British governments have understood that they lack the political authority to rule in Northern Ireland without Dublin's involvement. The British state has never had adequate political authority in Northern Ireland and you don't need the protocol to tell you that. The Good Friday Agreement already told you it. The Good Friday Agreement constitutionalizes the influence of another state's government over the administration of a province of the so-called United Kingdom. So uh, that's my first reason for not finding a place for Northern Ireland in my answer to the British question. It's just not British, and British governments treat it that way. My second reason is a consequence of the first, um, retaining formal sovereignty over a territory in which Britain lacks sufficient authority uh, to rule unaided to be a real weakness in the Brexit negotiations. All the way through 
Britain was on the back foot. British governments who were committed to the Union were on the back foot over the border question, unable to take the initiative with the European Union, and the protocol is the result. Now, David Frost and Boris Johnson are now seeking to whittle down uh, the, pro the protocol with their new proposals, and we'll see how this goes. The Union may stagger on uh, for a period. But Brexit has revealed the truth about it. My third reason um, for finding no place for Northern Ireland is that my own answer to the British question is not global Britain, and nor is it penitent Britain. It's democratic Britain. Democracy is one British tradition that has shown signs of life recently. We may not have been the first modern democracy, but we do have a unique constitutional instrument in the sovereignty of parliament, a uniquely democratic uh, uh, constitutional instrument, and Britain was the home to the first mass democratic movement in modern history. And it was our democratic tradition, tradition that emerged in the Brexit struggles as the most important thing that Leave voters were fighting for. So it's democracy that has the potential to give meaning and coherence and authority to the British nation after Brexit. And significantly for our discussion today, it is democracy that has always been available in Scotland on equal terms with England and Wales, but has never been available in Northern Ireland throughout the whole hundred years of its existence. The Good Friday Agreement mandates for Northern Ireland an undemocratic sectarian system of devolved government that is entirely different to the rest of the UK and the parties which seek to represent the population in the rest of the UK play no part in it. So they're my three reasons for not finding Northern Ireland in my answer to the British question. None of my arguments should be read as simply abandoning British citizens in Northern Ireland to their fate. It is an argument not just for saying, hey, we should have a border poll, but for British citizens getting, becoming an active, constructive part of the process of reuniting Ireland. Uh, for Brexit Britain to lead the reunification of Ireland, would be a true act of international leadership, an emphatic commitment to democracy, a demonstration to the world of what is possible for a country that understands the meaning of its own sovereignty. In other words, it would be the polar opposite of the Tories' sad global Britain. Peter, that was great. And our four speakers, thanks very much for um, keeping the time. I have so many questions, and I want to be self-indulgent and ask them, but I'm not going to. I'm going to be really selfless. I'm going to have a look at the audience to see who wants to ask questions, and we'll take three or four at a time. And when we come back to the panel, panel, I know I'm asking a lot of you, but don't spend too long answering. Maybe sometimes pick up the one that's most pertinent for you. And if you think the speaker next year already answered that question, you can take another. Hello, thank you for your comments. Um, I'm half Irish, half British. And in honour of Ireland today, I'm wearing my Dunn's department store dress. <laughs> um, I just wanted to ask, though, about the protocol. Um, is it really necessary? Because... I'm just checking on my phone um, about a, two, uh, a report that was issued in 2017 for the European Commission called Smart Border 2.0, Avoiding a Hard Border on the Island of Ireland. And this report suggests many solutions um, to avoid a hard border. So is it just um, a myth? Um, a strategy that the EU have come up with um, as a ploy, if you like, to prevent the UK from properly Brexiting. Um, I would suggest that the protocol is not necessary and other solutions can be found and peace can continue in, on the island of Ireland. Thank you. I'm Austin Harney from the trade union side and a group called Labour for Irish Unity, which is merging within the Labour Party. Um, the question I wanted to ask, um, we talk about all these divisions, which is focused on sectarianism, but there's no mention on the marginalised sections of Irish society, particularly the Irish citizens abroad, where we even have a strong embedded Irish Republican diaspora. Uh, in my own great uncle fled Ireland during the Irish Civil War, second generation Irish anyway. Um, what I'm trying to point out, that's one aspect as well, Irish citizens, their right to vote in this border poll. There's other sections we could go on. I know that Andre has mentioned women who were discriminated south of the Irish border since the Civil War. 
but also what about the travellers and also disabled? No mention of them at all whatsoever. I pushed for the first historic meeting, British TUC Disabled Workers Committee, with that of the Irish Congress of Trade Unions this year. And the disability legislation is absolutely appalling um, in the Republic of Ireland, nothing for invisible impairments. And in Northern Ireland, it's got the lowest disabled employment rates in the United Kingdom, which is shockingly low. So I think more questions about the marginalised communities. I know we mentioned unionism very quickly, but uh, we haven't talked about the Protestants who lived in the United Ireland. One, and they were actually victim, uh, many were murdered during the pogroms since the treaty, uh, 1922. Continued to face murder and violence throughout Northern Ireland at that period. And of course, the, the famous one, Stephen Boyd, who made it, who acted in Ben-Hur as a Protestant who lived in the United Ireland from Belfast. But I'm just saying these marginalised communities is what we really need to work on if we are seriously talking about a border poll for Irish unity. So I stand by that and I will carry that conviction to the grave. Thank you. Thank you all very much. Um, the name's Ewan Grant. I'm a former uh, customs and excise intelligence analyst who covered cross-border issues um, and also subsequently in European Union programmes. The answer to the ladies, the first lady's point is um, the technology and particularly the close working relationships between HMRC, PSNI, the Garda and the Irish Revenue Commissioners. Uh, it, 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 there's no need for all this. It is quite feasible and I have seen firsthand in a non-Irish context, this is in Eastern Europe, the total cynicism, incompetence and corruption of the European Commission. I hope Claire Fox can have a cup of tea, sit down with Baroness Catherine Ashton and put the Watergate question to her about a lot of things that went on. My question is, what about building trust between the unionists and the people of the South um, in relation to one issue where I think the nationalist community, both north and south of the border, has questions to answer. It's quite simply, why still segregated schools? I have never met an Irish Catholic who would refuse blood for a member of their family from a traffic accident, from a Protestant, but I have met huge numbers of Irish Catholics who were educated at sectarian schools. Thank you. Sorry about that, but that's no, a fact. Fair play to you, and um, where you agree or disagree, and yourself, and then we'll go back to the panel. My, uh, so uh, I'm James Patterson from uh, the Irish Post. Um, my first question is for Nick. Um, isn't it true that uh, Edward Carson, who you cited, um, in your, uh, in your talk there, fell out with mainstream unionism post-Anglo-Irish agreement um, over the very issue of partition itself. Um, for different reasons than the nationalist community, he recognised that the carving of the island would bring with it many complications, and hasn't he been proved right in that? Um, and my second question is for um, Dwayne. Um, it's interesting that you conceptualise unionists as the most serially betrayed people on the islands when Northern Ireland was declared from its inception to be a Protestant parliament for a Protestant people. Do you not think that the nationalist community, as well as the marginalized groups that were mentioned by an earlier speaker, um, and who didn't have full civil rights until at least the late 1960s, um, that they were in fact the most betrayed and, and victimized um, in the Northern Irish state? Thanks, James. Pick up what you want, give us your position on the protocol if you want, and then that's it. Who wants to go first? Whoever, go. Uh, first, come, come back to you directly. Um, yes, I'm not denying that the nationalist community have been betrayed, but actually not so much betrayed, it was pretty clear what was going on. I don't think that was betrayal. I think what has happened to the unionist community is promises made and promises not to live time and time and time again. In case of the nationalist community, the Catholic community of Northern Ireland, they knew from the start that it wasn't set up in that way. So betrayal requires a belief that something was going to be better. And I think that's what I mean by betrayal. Uh, so the constant disillusion and letdown felt by the unionist community is different from the sheer pissed offness from the national, nationalist community. 
that make sense? Okay, I'm sorry. Okay, it makes sense, but let me just push on that without getting too historical. The pissed off, let's be clear. So they, they were second class citizens. Oh, yeah. Okay, but you're defending the union and partition, so I just want to be clear. So are you defending the fact that when they partitioned Ireland, they set it up with those people being second class citizens? I think the second class citizens are actually on both sides of the board. I'm asking about the six counties right but now. I agree, but I then one can turn to okay. the other counties and I say don't, don't, it, was, it was not an ideal solution to a very difficult situation. Uh, both sides behaved badly, but that's how it is. It has, I think, moved on on both sides in that time, but the unionist community continued to be betrayed, whereas the nationalist community less so in the way that politics is, is behaving towards them. Uh, that would be my contention. Get on, if I could then just come back to yeah. the... The protocol, yes, I think it, it could be solved through technical uh, reasons, but it was never about technical issues. It was about a... I want, I, Carson keeps on coming up, doesn't he? Um, funny that. But um, I've always felt, actually, that uh, the moment... I feel that the moment things will be better on the, the broader island of Ireland is when Carson's bust is into Trinity College Library like every other MP that represented that university. At that point, I feel that there seems to be a, a moving forward. But the, the Northern Ireland Protocol was always a tool. It was always a weapon. It was always an attempt. And I think it was Carson that said, uh, England's trouble is not necessarily Ireland's solution. Um, and nor is England's trouble in the case of Brexit and the, and the issue that we were talking about necessarily the EU's Playing hardball, in the end, defeats the person who is playing hardball. Thank you. Mick? Uh, yeah, well, just to pick up that thing on Carson, uh, <laughs> it's not surprising he disagreed with other unionists because he was a good Dublin man, born in Harcourt Street, uh, right in the centre of town, around the corner from uh, Stevens Green. He was also a very close friend of Redmond. He had huge empathy with uh, <laughs> Catholic Ireland, and I think... He was also, well, I'm not going to go there. Um, but the tone of that statement can only come from someone who has empathy, both with people who, who the proposal was to fling out. I can't remember the exact phrasing because I haven't got it in front of me. But the, and I thought that was a really powerful, emotional cap, capture of what unionists felt they were facing when uh, the, with home rulers in... Uh, cahoots with Churchill, who was then, I think, uh, Minister for the Colonies and was very pro-home uh, rule. Uh, he, was, he was expressing exactly what it felt like to be flung out of your home into some other kind of arrangement. But he also, that, the way he addresses Redmond and the other nationalists in the House of Commons that day really comes from someone who understands on a deep, visceral level what it is to live in a plural, uh, a plural society. Now, my parents, I, I first took up Irish citizenship in 1980 when I first went abroad, and I was entitled to Irish citizenship because both my parents were born in a united Ireland under the United Kingdom. Dad was 1914, Mum was 1920. Now, the truth is, Ireland had to get its freedom because the, 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 the situation that the vast majority of the population in the Republic had faced for at least 100 years before that was intolerable. So it had, partition was one of those unfortunate things that came about because nobody could find a way of building a plural, independent, uh, either Republic or Dominion under, under, under the British crown. And what I think as Irish nationalists and Irish Republicans really need to consider is, are they proposing something in which unionists can feel that, uh, that comfort, that warmth, that home place, as Seamus Mallon called it, that shared home place, or is this just a 100-year campaign to get revenge on the people who did us down? And, and, and I'm not saying, I'm saying that's a question that has to be answered by every decent, peace-loving, uh, Irish Republican going forward, because if you can answer that question in the positive, then a united Ireland will come about through uh, an evolution, an evolutionary process. Good question, Mick. I got to stop you. Yeah. 
go answer that, Andre, if you want. Well, I suppose um, it goes to that question, and also the one that Austin Harney raised around reimagining a new Ireland. So, you know, this isn't about replicating what happened in the South and extending it North, or vice versa. This is about a new Ireland, because Ireland has changed completely in the past number of years. If we see the equal marriage vote, if we see the vote on women's reproductive rights, the, the island of Ireland has completely changed. And the Ireland that I want as an Irish Republican is one that's going to, to have an education system that isn't based on sectarianism, but extends the, the wonderful education system in the South, North, so that you don't have the low educational achievements that are happening in the North at the minute, the lowest on the entire island and some of the lowest between the two islands, that we will see the high, that we will We'll see good education right across the island of Ireland based on equality, based on international norms. We'd see the application of international human rights law across the island so that no member of society, whether they're travellers, whether they're new Irish, whether they're women, whether they're children, can point and say, this island has betrayed me, has left me behind. It wants to be an Ireland that appreciates Britishness, unionism, Protestantism on a, on a very special way and in a valued way so that no Protestant British citizen or Ulster Unionist will ever say that I have been betrayed by this state the same way as I have been betrayed by London, that they will feel valued, that they will have a real place in this new Ireland. I think this is the most exciting time of, the mo of contemporary history for our island and we can imagine that very special place for unionism. We want to do it but we also need partners in that. We, we can't say, I can't say how an Ulster Protestant British citizen is going to feel comfortable in this new island. They need to be participants in this conversation too. And we have to make that a place that they are welcome consistently and that we ensure that our language and our actions ensure that. But just, just, just a wee quick question on that. What, you know, because this is a big issue back home and it annoys the unionist a lot, the UP Ulster unionist. They say they don't want to have the conversation that they're British catch yourself on, stop presenting it like that. How do you come back to that? Well, I, I, I fully get it. And I, and I go, well, why would anyone want to do that? So we, as the people who are having this conversation, always need to make sure that door is open, always make sure that there's a chair in the room so that when the time comes, if that time comes, that that chair and that door can be, can be sat in easily. It is comfortable and it's a valued space. The truth is that if there was to be a border poll, if there was to be a reunification of Ireland, Ulster unionism will have a much greater stake in terms of a new um, Dáil Éireann or a new Irish parliament than they currently do in the place around the corner. And they will have a much greater influence. And I think in those days they will realise that. But the most important thing is that in those days it is valued and appreciated. Thank you. Peter? Just quickly on the protocol. I mean, although I'm in favour of, of a united Ireland, and I, I think British people should be for uh, our, our own interest, <laughs> Uh, in the authority of our own state uh, and in its immediate future. I do think the protocol was essentially a ploy. Uh, it's an undemocratic arrangement. In fact, it's very much like the European Union in many ways. It's, uh, you know, it, it drags in an unaccountable set of, uh, of uh, other states that, uh, and institutions that are not accountable to the people of Northern Ireland. Uh, so I'm completely against it. However, it seems to me to be an inevitable consequence of the Good Friday Agreement. It's what the Good Friday Agreement brought in the context of, of uh, Brexit. It, it, Dublin just has had the influence uh, under the terms of the Good Friday Agreement. If Dublin said no, and they did say no, doing Brussels work, no doubt, but they did, then that's a problem. That's why I think we should, uh, that's why I think Britain should um, uh, engage in reunifying Ireland to get rid of things like the protocol. Do you know why I find this debate so friggin' interesting? Because if you were having it back in Ireland, you'd know where you, it would be a debate amongst the Irish about, you know, why or not you should have uh, United Ireland or not. What's fascinating here is listening to some people in the audience who are coming from, from the Irish angle, we're Irish, this is we're for, we're against, but listen to the British people have a nurse. It's so friggin' fascinating <laughs> to different angles. Um, right, who wants to speak? From the British point of view, um, we've had two people talking about making um, uh, the unionists feel comfortable in a united Ireland. I want to go back to um, what Peter and what Gawain said about um, democracy and especially what you said, Gawain, about people being equal in the north of Ireland, being part of 
Britain. And um, I raise a banal argument, um, abortion rights. Um, abortion rights were not accepted by the unionists. They weren't um, satisfied in saying, well, we won't have abortions because we don't like them and none of our people want one. We want to have a law which says nobody else can have them either. And so people in Britain, people in the big island of Britain, said, well, why can't the Westminster government impose that on those people? So what do you say about that? Great if question. you want to be part of Britain, you have to be part of it. Great question. And James Hartfield there next to you. Well, I, I think like uh, a lot of people in Britain, uh, I've always been relatively sympathetic to a united island, and that's a significant uh, pr uh, proportion of the... Uh, population which has been committed to that. It's been represented in the Labour Party. It's been represented in uh, trade union support. Um, it's not majority position, but it, it's a significant uh, proportion. I, I think also that this, and this is unpleasant, but a great many people in Britain really don't care and resent and despise to a degree the extent to which we feel that we've been uh, um, held hostage. I know this is going to sound terrible, but we hate all that. Um, uh, you know, it's too difficult to understand and it seems very dangerous. So it's not really uh, attractive uh, to people in Britain. I think this is why it's difficult to be a unionist in Britain. I think people with significant commitments to the union obviously have got a slightly different situation, but a lot of people in Britain are pointedly indifferent and that um, probably works in favour of uh, an Irish Republic. I think the thing, and I'm, I really accept... Uh, uh, Peter Ramsey's point about that it's been impossible to impose British sovereignty in the six counties of Northern Ireland. This is a thing that you cannot avoid, is that um, uh, to govern a place that doesn't want to be governed is the most awful situation to be in because it's disastrous for the people who are governed and it's disastrous for the authority of the governors uh, and that's a significant problem. Where I think I've, I differ with you is that I wonder if you're taking seriously enough the uh, non-appearance of Irish nationalism. Is it not the case that, you know, especially since the abandonment of Articles 2 and 3 and uh, in the context of the Good Friday Agreement, in the changing policy of Sinn Féin, you know, which has become more like Sinn Féin, the Workers' Party, in its two traditions <laughs> position, um, is it not the case that there is a dying away of the ambition to govern uh, the six counties uh, as part of an all-island solution. question. Uh, the word empathy, I think, has come up quite a few times. I mean, you mentioned about, you know, there's a British perspective, but I don't think we should forget there are people in this room, like me, for example, that are from an Anglo-Irish tradition. You know, we resent having to have to choose between our British citizenship and our Irish citizenship. And wasn't that one of the great innovations of the Good Friday Agreement, and that for the first time it enabled whether you were born in the north of the island or in the south of the island, you didn't have to choose whether you were British or whether you were Irish. Even though we've now Brexited, uh, you know, the common travel area, which has been in place since the 1920s, has continued. That gives an Irish citizen exactly the same rights to live, work and study and vote in our elections as it does a British citizen who goes over to Dublin and can do exactly the same thing. So I think when we talk about this debate, it can't just be boiled down to very simple, uh, simplistic arguments about what the institutional and political apparatus. And finally, just to challenge uh, Peter as a question, if he's saying that uh, you know Northern Ireland doesn't pass the Britishness test on the basis of his thesis, then the people of Gibraltar are not British, the people in the Channel Islands are not British, the people in the Falklands are not British. Surely, what we should be talking about is a is is a British family of nations, not necessarily just the relationship with the UK Parliament. And that's where I stand in this debate. I don't think all those people are British, but that's just my own opinion. There's a lot of students in the audience. What Tom and James Hartfield said, that a disagreement, and let me quickly throw it out to the young ones who might not know that much. James is the fact of the accusing Sinn Féin and others of not really wanting to talk about that in Ireland because they want to give the unions their space to be who they are with their identity, etc. Um, and Tom at the back is disagreeing, so that's a good thing to let people have multiple identities and young people who wouldn't be expected to know about the Good Friday Agreement, but Northern Ireland's a wee bit unique in that 
there's an effort to try to allow people to have more than one identity as a way of getting around the binary polarised either or. So just to fill in the emotions, I thought what the two of you said from different positions was really interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, I can't find a place for unionism. If you're actually having this debate and you have to pick which what you want the future to be and put forward your ideological viewpoint of where you want the island of Ireland to go, it's quite remarkable um, among certain supposedly Republican circles the cowardice in being able to say what it is that you actually want from this discussion. I mean, uh, you know, with the greatest respect to Andre, uh, talking about education for kids or get, you know, gay marriage rights and all that kind of stuff around. I mean, we're talking about the border, we're talking about the union, the future of the United Ireland. It seems like a secondary issue. I mean, really echo James's point about the fact that Sinn Féin now spends most of its time, you know, discussing whether or not there's enough access to gay clubs in the Republic of Ireland, or whether it's, you know, what great thing it would be for a United Ireland that we could all join the European Union, which is, a as Pete Ramsey has mentioned before, is a perverse... Uh, notion of what independence and sovereignty means. The thing I really wanted to highlight, I don't know if I came in late, I don't know if you mentioned it in your intro, Kevin, but there's this funny bit of a stink going on now in Ireland about what's happened with the President, Michael D. Higgins, and his refusal to go to what was essentially a commemoration event for what was described as the creation of the of Northern Ireland. <laughs> and he was and he refused. I mean whatever you might think Michael Dean is my biggest fan, but fair play to him for refusing to be first of all referenced as the president of the Republic of Ireland. And second of all going to be expected to capped off to an anniversary, which you know is something that happened in history. And you know we have an Irish government at the moment that back in January 2020 is playing you know, he, they could moonlight as the Waterstones publicists, suggesting that they were going to commemorate the RIC and uh, you know, sending Black and Tan song right up to the top of the charts. We've got this weird, very strange, I mean, we're at a festival of free speech. Why don't we start thinking about the way in which the censorship around and the, and the hostility to any open discussion about the history of what happened in Ireland? We have, you know, you can go on news right now and opine about any kind of reparations to this person and that person, this group and that group, and endless discussions about Britain's colonial past, and no one will talk about what it was that the Good Friday Agreement actually did, what it was, what the, the context of that history. And that means that we're all a bit constipated in our contemporary discussion, because even someone who's supposedly arguing for a United Ireland can't find the balls to do it. Thank you. And last but not least, one of the, the great things about thinking of it as a British question is for so long, and all the time I can remember talking about Ireland, it was the Northern Ireland question. And for me, that's the most depressing thing. Because the Northern Ireland question was about how do people live together, Catholics and Protestants, um, nationalists and unionists. So it takes the categories that were thrown up through partition and makes them into a sort of permanent and intractable problem that we all have to spend decades, centuries dealing with to try and reconcile things that aren't reconcilable. And so, so much energy is spent doing that. And I think that the problem has been that the solutions that have been thrown up and have emerged on the basis that it's a Northern Ireland question have actually institutionalized those problems, uh, those divisions, but they've also internationalized them. And since the um, 1985 Anglo-Irish Agreement, it's actually these partition and those divisions have been enshrined in international treaty. So the complexity we face as British people and Irish people is it's not just that we have to make our way and and, and find a democratic solution, which I'm with Peter and and um, with the, the, the lady there, sorry. Andre. In the, in the beautiful red. <laughs> <laughs> I'm with you, and I think that the solution is a united Ireland. It's going to take a hell of a lot of work to get there because the partition is actually not, it's not in the gift of the British government or even the Irish government. It is actually enshrined in international law now through the Good Friday Agreement and now through the protocol. It's an international problem. It's got an international dimension. It's good that we know that and we start to think about that. Thank you and thank you very much. Look, I will go back to you. I know you're going to hit me, Paul, forgive me. You get one minute, pick up whatever one you want. Who wants to go first? 
Okay, cool. Uh, just to Tom at the back, um, the people of those territories, the, the, the Malvinas Islands, uh, Gibraltar, are, are British. I, they are British. They're British citizens, as, the, uh, as many people in Northern Ireland are, and indeed many people in the Republic of Ireland are. Um, the territories are not. Yes, you're right. Logically, uh, my argument says those territories are not British either. Uh, the great thing about the relation, uh, now they have their own problems, that's another discussion. The great thing about our, the British citizens in Northern Ireland going forward is the tremendously uh, uh, constitutional arrangements, arrangements we have, common travel area, being able to vote in each other's elections. So we're already halfway there in relation uh, to Ireland. Um, but it's the territory that's uh, the problem. My answer to, to James's question, yes, I, I think Irish nationalism is over. The whole period of, since 1916 has ended, hasn't it? Um, it when Sinn Féin and the Irish nationalists are pro-European Union, Whatever you say that is, it's not nationalism. So um, I, I agree that that's over, over. They think, as I, far as I can understand it, that they're building a new island, which is all parity of esteem. It's all kind of Good Friday Agreement kind of language. Um, but I would compare them to the conservative Brexiteers. Uh, conservative Brexiteers thought they were creating Singapore on Thames by leaving the European Union. But it turns out they're the high-wage party, and we're heading for a high-wage Britain. Uh, subjective political actors, when major sh shifts like this occur, there are all kinds of unintended consequences. Mm -hmm. New Ireland is well named because it won't be the Republic of Ireland absorbing the six counties. It will be a whole new situation. And I suspect though Sinn Féin will be early gainers, they will struggle to control the demands of the Irish nation, just as the British Conservative government is struggling to be able to articulate uh, the needs and demands of the British nation. But guys, just on your points, uh, James at the front and yourself, Peter, my, this is my wee theory, Andre can put me right. I, I think Sinn Féin are playing a relatively clever game. They don't want to talk about United Ireland too much because they know that they're seen and presented as toxic to Saxonianism. And so the debate I think is happening in Ireland is where other people are going to step up the plate. Dare I said, Andre, dare I said, me, Dare I say, people who are joining what we call civic organisations and trying to find another way to go about that. But that's just my theory. Yeah, very sure. Yeah. And the point I'm trying to drive home is, is uh, James is right, the agency for this discussion came from the British electorate. That's where it came from, because they, they mucked it up. And, and people in Ireland went a bit crazy, understandably, yes. because suddenly they were being yanked around on Britain's yes. chain again. Yes. So Irish academics were insane yes. with rage yes. about, about Brexit. Yes. Um, but that's, that, that, what we've got to understand is the responsibility lies in this room. The agency is in this room. And what I'm trying to get across to you is that we can't determine in this room what should happen in Ireland. That's for Irish people. But we should be engaged constructively uh, with the process. Really interesting. Go on, go in. All right, a couple of things. Um, on the abortion question, I think you have a very good point. Entirely. Uh, I really do. I don't think uh, issues such as that in Wales or Scotland uh, would be felt in any other way. So you do have a good point. I think it's a little bit disingenuous to say it's all the Protestants' fault. Uh, Protestantism famously uh, doesn't have some of the issues with, say, abortion as Catholicism does. So I think it's a, it, this was an issue with was long-standing in both communities. Yes, in more recent years, it's become much more prevalent in the, in the Protestant community. But I, I don't think you can say that uh, the Catholic community as a whole have always been great fans of abortion. I don't know. I may be wrong. Um, and, the, and one other thing, on Peter's point, it's all about how... and. and it is a valid one, how Northern Ireland has always been very difficult for the UK government's writ to run, because it is not. I've got a strong suspicion Dublin is going to have a very similar problem, um, if not far worse. Far, far worse. So, I, yeah, take your point, but to both sides of that coin. And one thing, that, it's almost a philosophical point, and this is the drive for, towards... Uh, and how the Northern Ireland approach gone, how post-Brexit uh, things... It's all about... It's progressive politics. It's actually anti-the-nation. Current Irish nationalism isn't nationalism, as has been sort of touched on. It's anti-nationalism, like Scottish nationalism. The SNP are not a Scottish party. They're an anti-Scottish party. They wish for governance to be taken elsewhere on a more global level. And so all of this, in many ways, is not about nationalism. It's anti 
nationalism is anti the nation state. It's a really interesting point, and I hear a lot from my friends in England <coughs> that you know it's anti nationalism. That how can you have a sovereignty and independence in the EU? That's a really interesting point. But the point is, if it's a balls up for those people when they go in the EU, that's their decision still, isn't it? Still, yeah. So the English people can say that, but then it's up for the Irish people to decide. I, now, these two wonderful people on my left have sacrificed their chance to speak so I can squeeze in one or two people. So it's going to have to be quick. Um, I just wanted to make a comment about democracy. Um, because it seems to be, it's like been mentioned, but actually the gentleman at the end there said, Still, in Northern Ireland, the elections are run pretty much along sectarian lines. They're not moving into like left and right. They're like on sectarian lines. And through that, you said, yeah, there's a majority for unionism. Well, that's end of then, isn't it? If the majority of people there are union, want union with the rest of the United Kingdom, want to be part of the United Kingdom, then that's it. Yeah, I, I think... This notion of the sectarian headcount, they turn around, I'm an Irish Republican, they turn around and say that I vote for Sinn Féin, I'm sectarian, that's absolutely ridiculous. But you've fallen into the trap here is the two tribes scenario. Absolute nonsense. The British state have a responsibility. It evolved itself in Ireland, the same as all the, all the colonial escapades around the world. It's been a disaster. There was a liberation struggle. There was 26 counties liberated, the country was partitioned, and it's been a disaster ever since. Mick talked about in the opening set of things about a new body politic. There is a new body politic. I'm part of it as well. I voted strategically, and I voted for the Alliance Party in the European elections. <coughs> the unionist majority is gone in the European elections, in local government, and in the assembly. It's over. There's a trajectory. The Irish government that were involved in the carve up for the Gale and Fitton Fall for decades. You talk about the New England unit, it's a response to what's happening on the ground. You don't be Mick in reality. You're not there, you're not part of it, you don't see it, you report on it. And part of the reportage isn't picking up on what's going on. The biggest thing, the elephant in the room, other than the protocol, which I think everyone's been dealing with, is devolution. Northern Ireland has devolution. The rest of the UK has devolution. If you want gay marriage, if you want abortion, if you want anything else represented in Northern Ireland, it's within your gift to do that. Just because the unionists are against certain issues in Northern Ireland doesn't mean that you can't win the argument with the public and actually force that change. As it happens, you, a lot of people against the unionists decided to collapse Stormont and then the Westminster did actually step in break devolution and impose gay marriage and abortion rights over in Northern Ireland. Whether you agree with them or not, that actually happened, and I feel like no one's been talking about that. Leave us with your final one or two sentences, food for thought. Who wants to go? Uh, we have a responsibility, to Pauline's point. We have a responsibility. It will be a hell of a lot of work. But if we don't take responsibility for what's happening in Northern Ireland, we in Britain, we are not taking responsibility for our own state. That's my point. Yeah, look, on Mark's point, he's right. I don't live in Northern Ireland and I haven't done for a long time. What I do do is read the data and the data is really clear. Integrated education is happening. It's not being negotiated by anybody else. It's parents saying, we want our kids educated together. That's now 7% of the whole school population. It won't be done by cross-party negotiation. It'll, it'll be through the rule of two feet, people leaving. What's also happening is that uh, kids, I mean, Belfast Royal Academy now, uh, in every 10, four of the students are Catholics, five are Protestants, and the other, uh, the remaining balance, have no uh, identity at all. So the categories, and it's really, in terms of that whole, you know, uh, geopoly thing, the Northern Ireland society is changing. And there is no longer a unionist majority. Mark is absolutely right on that score. But nor is there going to be a nationalist majority either. The game is for the other 20% who do not want to play the game of uh, constitutional politics. And that's the trend, not in my opinion, but in the data that's there in public to be read uh, by anyone. And that means we have to play a different game. Whether you're a unionist or a nationalist, you've got to convince that 20%. Thanks, Mick. And just to let people know, 
Mick would generally be an in-betweener. So they're the 20% in the north of Ireland who haven't decided if they're going to go United Ireland, haven't decided if they're going to go uh, pro-Britain. It's 40-40, more or less, give or take. So the battle is to win that 20%. Um, I just wanted, Michael D's uh, name was raised earlier on, and he said when he was over here, um, uh, when he was at the, in Windsor Castle, we live in each other's shelter. And I think our two islands do. And we have connections that are un unrecognisable anywhere else on the globe, um, whether it's our families, whether it's our working relationships or our political past. We live in each other's shelter and we will grow from that. But it is up to the Irish people to determine their future, whether it's north, whether it's going to be north, south. But we will always have an east west connection. And it's about how we ensure that we do this in a way that we value every single citizen on the island of Ireland equally. Mick, Andre, Gawain, Peter, can I say thank you? It was an impossible task, one hour and 15 minutes, to discuss a United Ireland or keep with the union. It was a whistle stop tour. I do apologise because some people are frustrated who I didn't take, but at least I think we got the ball rolling. So thank you very much, guys. <laughs>